For 98 sermons now, we have made our way through the Gospel of Luke. And uh, you might be wondering this morning, when are we going to get to a Chris, our Christmas sermon series? And we're not going to get to a, a topically or thematically Christmas series this year. That's not because we're so close to the end of Luke, I just want to finish. Um, it is because I think it's important as we finish Luke to see how the, the things that we celebrate at Advent are related to the things that Jesus demonstrates and teaches us here in his final days on earth. So in years past, often we will do a, a Christmas sermon series. Other years we won't. And it's not because we're, we're you know, Ebenezer Scrooges. It's because we believe that all of Scripture points us to the hope that found in Jesus Christ, a hope who was born into our world in Bethlehem that we celebrate at Advent, a hope, Jesus Christ, who suffered and died on the cross and rose again from the dead and will one day return. And so that's why we're going to continue this week and Lord willing the next two weeks and that will take us to the end of Luke. So if you're wondering how are we going to get two weeks worth of material out of verses 50 through 53 next week and the following week, it's because next week we're going to focus on the ascension and then on Christmas Sunday, the 24th, uh, we're going to essentially look at Luke's thesis, which is that we might have certainty and see how the entire book of Luke gives us certainty. So, Lord willing, I'm going to endeavor to give us one sermon on the entire book of Luke, and that will kind of wrap us up. Again, that's not because I'm trying to like fish for 100 sermons in the book of Luke, but it's because I think that would be a fitting way to end our series is to go back and kind of zoom out and see what we've learned. Now, we do know that Luke's purpose in writing this letter is to give us certainty, which should be incredibly encouraging to us this morning because that means that as the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write, and specifically to write so that we might have certainty, that means that certainty is possible. It is possible to have certainty that Jesus is who he said he is that he did what he said he would do, and that he will do what he promised he will do. It means that certainty is possible. And that kind of certainty is an incredible comfort to us. Not only when life goes well and our plans are happening according to our wishes, but it's especially comforting when our plans don't go as expected. When we encounter trials, storms, when we suffer, it's good to know that we have a sure and steady anchor, that we have a confident certainty that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, did accomplish salvation for all who believe, and will one day return and make all things new. In fact, as one famous line to a catechism reminds us, that is our only hope in life and death. Our only hope in life and death is that we are not our own, but we belong completely to God. So that is a certainty that comforts us. At the same time, this certainty that Luke is writing for does more than simply comfort us. It also motivates us. 
Uncertainty motivates us to be Christians who don't merely bask in the assurance that we belong to Jesus, but also proclaim the salvation available through him to others. Let me say that again, because that's significant for our time together this morning. Certainty, the certainty that Luke writes to give us through the work of the Holy Spirit, motivates us to be Christians who don't merely bask in the assurance that we belong to Jesus, who don't merely put our feet up and celebrate what a friend we have in Jesus, all our griefs to bear, but who also proclaim the salvation available through him to others. And that's what our text this morning I'm submitting to you is all about. It's all about certainty that comforts and certainty that motivates. Now, as we jump in here to our text, specifically in verse 36, you'll notice that Jesus has already been executed. He's already been risen three days later from the dead. And now in in the section immediately preceding this, in chapter 24, Jesus has been traveling with two individuals down the Emmaus road on their way to Emmaus. These individuals don't know who Jesus is. Jesus leads them in this glorious Old Testament Bible study. And then as they invite this man, Jesus, into their home and Jesus breaks bread before they eat, their eyes are opened and they recognize it's Jesus. And Jesus vanishes. He's gone. What do these two men do, or two individuals do? I mentioned in first service, for some reason, when I was a kid, the old school flannel graph, and if you don't know, most of you are too young to even know what that is, just Google it. The old school, like, visual reference we had in Sunday school had two men on the Emmaus Road. And there's nothing in the text to indicate it's two men, text we looked at last week. But for some reason in my mind, it just automatically revert to two men, because that's in my mind's eye what I see my dear old sainted teacher in fourth grade teaching us on that flannel graph. So we don't know that they were men. It could have been man and a woman, a husband and wife. We're not really sure. But these two individuals, after Jesus appears to them and vanishes, what do they do? They immediately, even though it's late in the day, they go all the way back to Jerusalem. And they find the apostles gathered there They join the apostles and they immediately begin to share everything that had happened. Like you will never guess. We were on our way. We were traveling. Cleopas was walking slow because he's weak. And as we're walking along, we were so slow that this other guy caught up to us. And he began to talk with us and began to ask ridiculous questions like, what are we talking about? And he didn't even seem to know what was going on in Jerusalem, the great news of the day. So we began to share with him. And then he told us we were slow of heart to believe. And he began to take us through this Bible study, showing us how everything that had happened in Jerusalem about this man, Jesus, was actually predicted by the Old Testament authors. And then we invited him into our home because he was about to go by and it was late in the day and we knew it's getting dark, it's probably not safe on the road, come in and join us for a meal, stay with us. And as we sat down, he stood up to bless the meal and he broke the bread and immediately we realized, as God gave us sight, this is Jesus. And you know what? He was gone. And it's as these individuals are sharing about their experience on the road and about their experience 
in their home with Jesus, that Jesus appears to them. And that's where we pick up here in verse 36. Word of the Lord says, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And John's gospel helpfully tells us that the room that they were gathered in was locked, which is, I think, important to note because it helps explain why they think Jesus is a spirit or is a ghost. All the doors are locked, all the windows are shut. These two individuals are recounting all the things that happened to them, which seems absolutely crazy and astounding when something even more crazy and astounding happens. Jesus actually appears. Now, the disciples' first response to Jesus is disbelief. And we're gonna get there in just a minute. But what is perhaps even more important are Jesus' words to his disciples when he appears to them. He says, peace to you. In fact, this is the most common greeting when the divine interacts with the mortal in scripture. Peace be to you, peace to you. Fear not, do not be afraid. Which is in in fact in, in itself a staggering reminder that peace is available to those who follow Jesus. I think Jesus is doing more than just saying, don't be scared. He is reminding them that he himself, according to the promises from the Old Testament, is himself the Prince of Peace. He is the one whom the angels announced on that night to the shepherds, who who is the one who is good news of great joy to all the people. Jesus has come as the Prince of Peace to give peace to those who are in him. That extends even to us today. Jesus is himself our peace, despite tragedy. Jesus himself is our peace despite uncertainty. He is our peace despite suffering and loneliness. He is our peace even when we are tempted to be overcome or overwhelmed by our own failures or our own shortcomings or our own imperfections. He is our peace because he suffered and died and rose again so that his perfection might be accredited to our account. So that his strength might be credited to our weakness. So that his ability might be credited to our own inability. So that regardless of what we walk through, even if we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil. Why? Because we are in Christ. Because he suffered and died. Because he's defeated death. Because he's promised an inheritance which is held for us, sealed for us by the promised Holy Spirit. Because nothing can separate us from the love of God. And this is the peace that Jesus brings. But notice, even in the the apostles and those gathered in the room, even amid their doubts, even amid their fear and surprise and questions, I think it's important for us to notice here 
the heart of Christ towards those who doubt. Let's not miss amid everything Jesus does, let's not miss his heart here. And his heart is demonstrated to us in the things that he does. But Jesus doesn't ridicule his followers for not understanding. Like, come on, folks. This is ridiculous. Like, you know the prophecies. You know the things that have been taught about me. You know the words that have been said. You saw the miracles. You, of all people, should know that this is really me. I told you I would die and come back to life. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus patiently proves his identity and his life. Notice how he does this. Verse 38, and he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet? It is I, myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took and ate it before them. Jesus appears to his followers and they struggle with doubts. They're not sure that it's really Jesus. They're not sure that they can actually believe, that they can put the weight of their trust, the weight of their lives out on the truth that this actually is the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And Jesus doesn't condemn. Jesus patiently, patiently proves that he is, in fact, alive. He shows them his nail-scarred hands and his feet. He invites them to touch him, to touch the divine. In fact, this heart of patience towards those who doubt is something we see often in the heart of our Savior throughout his ministry. And it's something, in fact, that we as his people are called to imitate. In fact, Jude, writing later, writing to believers, in fact, Christians like you and me, writes, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. Sounds a lot like what Jesus is doing here, doesn't it? He's accommodating their weaknesses. He's remembering their frailties. He's remembering, even as he spoke to these two on the Emmaus Road in verse 25, he's remembering how slow of heart we can be. That the mind can can grasp truths that the heart takes more time to process, believe, rely on. And this is exactly what we are to emulate today, church. We are to be patient And have mercy on those who doubt. The local church, this local church, in fact, should be a place where those who doubt, those who question, are welcomed. 
In fact, if you're here this morning, you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you're here because a friend wanted you to be here, or you're here to please someone else, or you're here because you have some questions, or you have some doubts, you are welcome. We're delighted that you are here. And we hope that as we sing the word of God and as we pray and read the word of God and proclaim the word of God and as we gather together in Bible studies and in small groups, as we gather together in discipleship groups, as we gather together as the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, we hope that you find us to be a place and a people where questions and doubts are welcomed. Where rather than saying, oh, we don't ask those kinds of questions here. Rather than shutting down honest dialogue Rather than kind of encouraging everyone to put on our brave, happy, put-together faces as though we're Christians who never have any doubts, never have any questions, never have any struggles, we hope that you find our church family to be a place where your questions and your doubts are welcomed. And we can say to one another, you know what, that's a great question. I don't know that I have a really good answer for that, but let's work together to discover the answer. And then to my Christian brothers and sisters in the room, it is quite possible, in fact, entirely likely that you have some questions and some doubts. We all do. And the church of Jesus Christ, this church, CCF, we pray is a place where questions are welcomed where we preach and teach and open the word together in such a way that we seek to address real, honest questions. It's one of the reasons we preach verse by verse through scripture. It's so that the Bible, so that God's word might slowly shape our thinking and answer our questions. It's one of the beauties of small groups, having a group of friends gathered around the word with whom we can ask honest questions. And I have the privilege of hearing from small group leaders from time to time, hearing some of the questions that are asked. Praise the Lord. These are good and right and faithful questions that we should be asking of the text. It's one of the driving motivations behind our discipleship groups that you and I might be able to work together through life's biggest questions, that we wouldn't work through life's biggest questions alone, or that we wouldn't go to Google, or that we wouldn't go to chat GPT with our life questions, but that we might wrestle and deal with the biggest questions of reality and existence and eternality with flesh and blood people, people that God has surrounded us with. People who think and act, some like us and some very different from us. But who are united in this quest to together be conformed into the image of the Son of God and together live out what it means to be in Christ. Because the Bible can handle that. The Bible can handle our questions. The Bible has endured 2,000 plus years of questions and wonderings and doubts and skeptics, and it has stood the test of time, and the Bible welcomes our questions, and so should we, because it's through the Bible and it's through the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that God not only brings peace to our hearts, but he brings comfort through our questions. There is greater comfort on the other side of questions, on our questions being answered, than there is just stifling our questions.
So if you're here this morning again and you've never trusted in Jesus, we hope that even this morning, even as we're worshiping together and singing together and praying together and reading and proclaiming together, we hope that God would be answering some of those questions, that he would prove his faithfulness, that he would prove his trustworthiness, that he is the son of God who suffered and died on the cross in our place for sin and really did rise from the dead, defeating sin and death and really is worthy of all glory and honor and praise and really is returning one day to this world to recreate it, to bring us to himself that we might be with him for all eternity. Luke tells us that in the room on that night, on that Sunday evening, after showing his followers his hands and feet, after inviting them to touch him and to see that he really was a real human, we read that Jesus' followers in verse 41 disbelieved for joy. Like, what in the world does that even mean? Disbelieved for joy. I think we might get a picture of it. Let's say you are traveling and you're in the airport and you look up and you happen to see someone, maybe a relative, a distant relative perhaps, or a friend or an old college roommate that you haven't seen in a long time. And you immediately, your first response is to get excited. You have that surge of adrenaline. Could that really be them? Then you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. And your rational thinking begins to take over and maybe just life experiences as a human, you're like, I've been let down so many times. I don't wanna be disappointed. It's probably not them. It's probably someone who looks like them. It's probably someone maybe who dresses or walks like them, but it's probably not them. I mean, what's the likelihood that it would actually be them? It's your joy that you're trying to protect. You're trying to guard your joy. I don't want to get too joyful, too excited, and then be let down and crushed. And so you, in that moment, are disbelieving that it's really them for joy. I think the disciples all the more are doing the very same thing. Like, we hope that that's Jesus. We want that to be Jesus. Wouldn't it be great if that really was Jesus? But think of how let down we might be if that, in fact, is not Jesus, if it's just a ghost, if it's just a spirit. And yet, how does Jesus even still respond? Continues to go that next step, the extra mile. He responds to their disbelieving for joy by asking them a question. Have you anything here to eat? Now we know that Jesus, who knows all things, knew what they had to eat. But he asked them this question. Like, hey, this is going to be obvious because I'm going to ask you for food. You're going to give me food. I'm going to eat it and a spirit can't eat Spirit can't eat real food. Right? Contrary to whatever cartoon you've seen where a ghost eats food and then you see it in their stomach, right? This is not reality. So Jesus goes the extra mile to demonstrate that it actually is Jesus, that his identity is true and faithful and sure, and that he really has risen from the dead. And then notice, he immediately, when they begin to understand these things, as they're wrestling with his identity, Jesus immediately moves on to the prophecies. He takes them back to scripture, just as Jesus did with these two travelers on the, the Emmaus road, just as he does so often, he takes them back to the word of God. Verse 44, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. He reminds them of his words. 
that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's a shorthand way of saying essentially everything in what we would call the Old Testament has been fulfilled in me. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Jesus' ultimate way of calming their fears, of answering their doubts, was to take them back to Scripture. And what a convicting and challenging and important reminder that is for us today. Our personal testimonies are wonderful things. What we've seen God do in the lives of others are wonderful things. But the most compelling, powerful witness for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the authority of Jesus, our risen King, is the Word of God. And here specifically, Jesus reminds them that his death and resurrection were a part of the plan of God from before time. In fact, this is the same thing that the angels do to the women who go to the tomb on resurrection morning. What do they say to these women? Remember what he told you. And then what does Jesus do on the Emmaus Road? Remember what was written. And what does he do now with his followers in this room? He says, remember the things that were written about me. He reminds them that this was the plan of God. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was not accidental. God was not trying to pull salvation together like you try to pull a meal together the day before grocery day. You're like, let's see how we're going to make this work and we're going to experiment a little bit here. No. The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ was God's plan from before the beginning of time. And he reminds them of that to to root their confidence and their certainty in the fact that God is sovereign, meaning he's in control, and he is good, and he is faithful to his promises. Almost like he's saying, here's why you can trust me. Because this was promised, I fulfilled it, I accomplished it, you can count on me. And just like the guys or the guys and women or whoever it was on the Emmaus Road, these followers of Jesus don't really see it until the Lord opens their minds to understand the scriptures. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. You might be thinking, well, what exactly is the Holy Spirit opening their minds to understand? Well, I think we get a hint at what he's opening their minds to understand in verse 46, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. He's opening their minds to understand the fact that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, and that his death and his resurrection are not, not an outside part of that plan, but rather validate the fact that he is the Messiah. Because I died, 
because I rose from the dead, even though you were tempted in those moments as you stood by the cross, and even though in those moments as you stood and the stone was rolled over the the front of the tomb, and even in those moments when the stone was rolled away and the report went out that my body was gone, even in those moments when you were tempted to think that those events and those things happening meant that perhaps I was not the Messiah, those things in fact are evidences for the fact that I am the Messiah. And so, Jesus in love and grace and patience opens their minds to see that Jesus' death and resurrection is not merely a historical fact, but rather that it is the theological grounds for their and our salvation. You see, our salvation hangs on the fact that Jesus is the Christ who died in the place of sinners and rose from the dead, paying the debt of sin of all who believe. And it's not as though before verse 45, Jesus' followers were completely ignorant of the Old Testament. Like Jesus isn't just like pouring data into their brains. Jesus is opening their, their minds. Or we could say, using the metaphor we used last week, he's opening the eyes of their heart to see the fuller meaning of what the Bible says. This aha moment which is so much a part of our testimonies, isn't it? Part of so many of our testimonies is, well, you know what? I heard the gospel. My grandma used to share the gospel with me. My grandpa would open his Bible and would read to us. My parents took me to church. My parents opened scripture. My parents read the Bible. They prayed the truths of the Bible. I heard the gospel preached, heard it on the radio as a kid or a young adult or a senior adult, and I, I heard it. And then all of a sudden, one day, it was like, aha, I realize that that's me. I need saving. I am a sinner. I am a rebel against God. And he rightly deserves worship and glory and praise. And I now see that the only way I can be saved, my only hope in life and death is through Jesus Christ, his death in my place, his resurrection for my resurrection, his new life. Now, was that... Did you arrive at that because in that moment or in that season of life, your IQ jumped 100 points? No. It's because God the Holy Spirit opened the eyes of your heart. Verse 45, it's because he opened your mind to understand what you didn't understand before. To understand who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. And what's the response to Jesus opening their eyes to understand the scriptures? Verse 46, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. What's the response of those who see who Jesus is and what he has accomplished? It's repentance. We repent. We turn from sin. We turn from trying to save ourselves. We turn from thinking that we don't need to be saved because we're good people. We're moral people. Or God grades on the curve. And you should see my neighbor, right? 
And for all who confess, all who turn, all who repent, all who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they are saved. We're forgiven. We're made new. We are justified. We're adopted. And it is possible, friends, to know about Jesus. It's possible to even believe that Jesus existed in that he did some of the things that the Bible said he did. It's possible to believe all of that and still not truly see, not truly believe, not truly live life actively trusting in God the Son. Which is why we all so desperately need God to open our minds, to open our eyes. Paul in his letter to the Corinthians, would put it like this, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Which is one of the reasons, not incidentally, that we are called to share the gospel, as we're going to see in a moment, and proclaim the gospel and be witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not just one time, And if someone rejects, we just move on to someone else. But over and over and over again, because we never know, but that the next time, that next prayer, that next conversation might, not because of our own glory, not because of our own doing, but because of the word that goes out, might be the very time the Lord uses his word to open up the eyes of their heart and to open up their minds for them to have, aha. That's me. I need salvation. I need to repent. I need to be saved. It's one of the reasons we pray so often here on Sunday mornings the words of Psalm 119, verse 18 Open my eyes that I might see wondrous things in your word. Asking God, God, without your help, we won't see it. So, Holy Spirit, help us. Show us your truth. Reveal your glory that we might see it. And when God does open our eyes, when he does reveal his glory and our sin and our only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ, who could resist repenting and trusting and turning and believing that Jesus is the Son of God, our Savior? And so you can see how this kind of certainty gives us comfort. Because Jesus Christ is trustworthy, we can rest who are in him. We can be like the psalmist and lay down at night and go to sleep. And truly sleep. Because the Lord sustains us. But this certainty does more than simply comfort us. As I mentioned earlier on, it also motivates us. Verse 46, again, Jesus said, it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So here on this night, this Sunday night in Jerusalem, Jesus was doing something amazing. He was laying out not only the fact that his life perfectly fits the whole created by the Old Testament predictions and expectations, 
but that his death and resurrection are now the pivotal acts of forgiveness that change all who believe. But these verses aren't just about what Jesus does to his followers. It's also about what Jesus' followers do in the world. Again, he calls to them, as he calls to us, that repentance and forgiveness of sins in light of Jesus' death and resurrection should be proclaimed or announced in all nations. He says, because you are witnesses to these things. In other words, the gospel is not merely to be believed, it is also to be proclaimed. We may not be witnesses in the same way that these believers were witnesses in Jerusalem on that day, because they actually saw the risen Savior with their own physical eyes. But Jesus did say that there would be a greater blessing for those who believe without seeing which is us. We are called to witness to his identity that he is the son of God. We are called to witness to his perfect life and witness to his death and resurrection. Our minds have been opened to see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have seen and come to believe he is the Holy One of God and we are called to make that known through our words, through our typing, through our lives. We proclaim this message. Jesus was essentially passing the baton here to his followers. Baton which is passed through generation to generation down to us. There is life and forgiveness for all who believe. Friends, it is in this announcing, it is in this bringing good news of great joy that we bring glory to God. We show off the value and the beauty of the God who planned and prepared and accomplished our salvation, who seals our salvation. And there's something else. Here in the announcing of good news, we are being prepared by God for an eternity in his presence. Let's not miss that. As we announce the good news of great joy for all who believe that Jesus is the Savior, is the Messiah, who suffered and died and rose again, as we announce that, we are being prepared for an eternity of announcing. Granted, in eternity, we won't be announcing that to those who have never heard or those who don't believe, but we will be announcing and declaring and celebrating that reality with one another. In glory, as we gather around the throne of our triune God and we sing together loudly things like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole world is full of his glory. We're going to do more than just announce that truth and reflect that truth back to the God who deserves it, but we will also be reminding one another and celebrating with one another. I had the opportunity a few weeks ago to go to a football game and what happened when our team scored a touchdown was really amazing. And I've only been to like two NFL games in my life, so I've never really seen this. Hey, strangers, right? Total strangers turning around to each other, like high-fiving and fist-bumping and yeah, celebrating together and hugging each other. As we celebrate that which was accomplished on the field. We didn't accomplish that, but we, part of our celebration, 
Part of our glorying in that which was accomplished was celebrating that, reflecting that to one another. And that's a picture of what happens when we come into worship every single Sunday. We didn't die on the cross. We didn't rise again from the dead. Jesus did that work. He accomplished that for us. And yet we come in every Sunday and we get to... We should maybe high-five one another and fist, as we're singing, Matt's leading us, and we should be turning around and fist-bumping, perhaps, <laughs> celebrating together, hugging one another. This is the glorious truth that has been accomplished for us. Amen. Amen. And for all eternity, that's what we will do. As our faces are turned towards Christ, maybe out of the corner of our eye, we're saying, that's, that's right, he did that for me. This is why Jesus would call us and tell us to take this good news to a, a dark world that needs to hear, that needs to know, without which there is no salvation. You might wonder, well, how can we do that? I feel so powerless, Eric. I, I don't know all the questions. I don't have all the answers. I didn't take a Bible class. I didn't go to seminary. Like, how do I do that? We all are powerless to do that on our own. That's the reality. Which is why we have glorious verse, verse 49. And behold, Jesus said, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Saints, do you know that you have been clothed with power from on high? You have. God has given to you his precious Holy Spirit who lives within you to clothe you with power from on high. To give you that nudge in the back as we go. To give us the words to say sometimes. To give us the grace when we're rejected. To remind us that this is ultimately his work. To give us joy that he would choose to use us. We have been clothed in such a way that God gets the glory as we do the going, as we celebrate the work of our Savior. And this morning, we're going to close by celebrating the work of our Savior as we take the bread and the cup, symbolizing the body of Christ and the blood of Christ for us, glorious grounding of our salvation. So I've invited... Some friends to serve the Lord's Supper, they're going to come, and so is the band. They're, the musicians are going to come back now. And as our friends prepare to wait on us and serve us the Lord's Supper elements, we know that in kindness the Father has provided through the work of His Son for our salvation, the salvation for all who believe. And in love, He has chosen to gift us the bread and the cup. He's chosen to give people like us whose minds wander and who are easily distracted and who easily forget, he's chosen to give us very tangible reminders of the most glorious work in human history. And so we regularly take of the bread and the cup. If you're here and you're a Christian this morning, actively trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are welcome to receive these elements as they come by. You might think, well, you know what? I'm, I'm really battling. I'm confessing my sin before the Lord, but it's not been easy. Or I'm dealing with some doubts, or I'm dealing with some questions, or I'm 
dealing with some temptation and I'm continually coming before the Lord and seeking his strength, but you know what? I'm, I'm not walking perfectly. My friend, if perfection were the requirement, not only would none of us receive the elements, but we would have no need for the elements. The elements are the reminder that we who are not yet perfect are welcomed and accepted and given grace upon grace through the finished work of Jesus. 